Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of October the 9th, and we continue looking at some spiritual warfare issues and specifically looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, in 2 Corinthians 10, we're attempting to discover just what is it that Paul means when he says in verses 3 and 4, for though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war, for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's verse 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons by which the world, or society, if we prefer that word, seeks to attack the problems that are everywhere present um, are very plain to us. They, they are, of course, investigations, studies of all kinds, reports from committees, meetings, educational programs, demonstrations, boycotts, strikes, pressure blocks, legislation, even violence at times. And if we're a student of history at all, we know that the world is unchanged in this respect. It's, it's unchanged from the days of Paul. These were exactly the same weapons, if you will, that society used to confront the problems that were present in the Roman Empire, where Paul wrote this letter. If we question that, you can refer to Will Durant's great volumes of the history of civilization. We find that he records exactly the same processes going on then as are going on now. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul sort of repudiates these as, as proper means for Christians to employ in attacking these strongholds. He, he, he sort of pushes them aside, not because they're basically wrong, but because they're essentially ineffective. They do not accomplish what it is they seek to accomplish. It's not that some of these means might not ultimately be part of working out of solutions, but they're not the primary, th- prim- the primary thing. And this is what Paul is saying. They are not the thing on which someone depends for victory in these struggles and battles of life if they are a follower of Christ. But Paul declares the weapons of our warfare are mighty. They are powerful. Literally, the, this is the word from which we get our word dynamite. These, these weapons work. They effectively solve the difficult problems of life, these running saddle sores of civilization where evil is entrenched these what we call strongholds of evil. So last week, we sort of defined that the weapons are revealed to us in various different scriptures all throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament. They are essentially four. I mean, we could name more, but for argument's sake, we're saying there's four. There's truth. In other words, the the revelation of reality, the exposure of things as they really are. In Romans 13, this is called the weapon of light. Turning on the light is a marvelous weapon for helping to dispel darkness in areas that is entrenched with evil. Um, Truth is the first of the weapons. The second is love. And see, love is linked with truth. Everywhere in Scripture, we find these two great forces together, truth and love. And often, I think, as Christians, we're guilty of one or the other. We're, We're guilty of being completely about truth with the absence of any kind of love, Or we just want to talk about love, 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 love without any respect to truth. And Paul writes to the Ephesians and actually really encourages them to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And in uh, the second letter of John, we read, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. The third weapon is 
righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's a righteousness that only comes from God the Father through Jesus Christ. It's that moral rectitude. It's that right behavior in line with reality. In the same letter in chapter 6, Paul refers to the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, by which I take he means the public life and the private life, the weapons of righteousness visible from the outside and in the interior life as well, righteousness, right behavior. And then the fourth of these weapons is faith prayer. It's, it's a life of faith expressed in prayer. We, we recall how in Ephesians 6, Paul speaks directly of the shield of faith with which we can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, Ephesians 6, 16. But in that passage, faith is linked with prayer, praying always for the saints in every situation. So here are the weapons which the church, capital C, is to employ. These are what followers of Jesus are to be armed with. So we fight quite a different dimension from that of the world and society in general. Yet that dimension is the key to the solution of these burning, pressing social problems. Whenever the church neglects these weapons, it is always weak and it is irrelevant. It is useless. We are shunned and we are ignored by the world around. Wherever these weapons are taken up, as history confirms, and as our current generation is discovering, there is the loosing of power. The church becomes an irresistible, an irresistible flame that, that like, like moths to it, people are drawn um, to, to be a mighty flood of dauntless force that begins to dissolve these problems and attack them. So let's take a closer look at the problems Paul is describing. He uses in this passage the word strongholds. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. It's the only place in the New Testament that this word in, it occurs in the Greek, but it is an easy word to understand because it is made up of root words, which literally mean a place of strength, a place which is essentially and inherently strong. In other words, a place where evil is entrenched, where it is fortified, where it's protected behind strong forces. It's not out in the open, easily exposed or overthrown, but it's, it's sort of encastled. It's, it's well defended. It's a fortress within walls with moats and turrets, and it's difficult to attack. So the question is, do we face situations like that today? Are there situations in our experience as an individual or in society in general where evil is entrenched like that? Long-standing evil, protected, buttressed, def defended by the general attitude of an entire community or a segment of society resisting all attempts to overthrow it, persisting and holding thousands in bondage and darkness and misery and despair. Are there places like that? Well, we know there are on every side. These are strongholds which the believer is to attack. And I think, that's, I think that's key, is that we have to realize that we can be on the offensive. America and the West in general is full of strongholds. Racial prejudice is, is that kind of stronghold. Bigotry seizes minds of people and discrimination against individuals because of the color of their skin um, colors everything that's done. Often such discrimination is defended or it certainly has been defended in the name of Jesus. Uh, 
despite clear pronouncements in the scripture as to the actual right attitude of the church with regards to this. It's an entrenched stronghold of error and darkness and one that the church has long failed to come to grips with. Materialism is another. And I would say that in our culture, in this, it is a major stronghold in Western culture. Materialism is the love of things. We have even sort of what has been coined as an American gospel. It's a prosperity gospel that basically says that because of my uh, relationship with Jesus, that I'm going to be given things and I'm going to be afforded things, um, material things, blessings. Well, the Lord certainly does bless, and he certainly can bless, and he will bless. But where in the gospels, where in the scripture does it say that we are to be affluent and to be comfortable If we read carefully and thoughtfully the passages in the New Testament that deal with believers' attitude toward things in the world around, we discover how terrible materialism really is and how the love of things blinds us, it it debases us, it blunts us in the capacity to live. It reduces human beings to nothing but comfortable animals living simply for pleasure. It ends in life becoming really shallow and superficial and filled with greed. Pride is a human, as in any human being, is another stronghold of evil. You see, pride can do amazing things to an individual as well as to society and even nations. Pride can lock people up as though they were in a straitjacket. No one can touch them. No, no one else can penetrate. It can erect a barrier between people who live together under the same roof. We've seen it happen many times. Husbands not speaking to their wives, wives shutting out their husbands out of their lives, not communicating because of this gulf, this chasm that's created by pride. Pride remains in control of that person in in all efforts made to to reason or to argue or to break it down where they're just resisted. We We can't legislate against it. We can't destroy it that way. Parents often isolated from children, children from parents, non-communication stretching wide, almost impassable, impossible to cross. These are the strongholds that Paul is talking about. These are the things that bother us. They are the things that make our lives miserable and create unhappiness and tension. Immorality is a similar problem, of course. Against these strongholds, we're not helpless. And that is the thing that we have to understand from this passage. We're not helpless. We are to attack these things every day. And this is what Jesus referred to and inferred in, excuse me, in, in Matthew 16. And I also pray to you that, that our Peter, and on this rock, Peter's testimony given verse 16, you are, the, the, you are the Christ, the Son of living God. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell is not a symbol for a defensive action. It is not a church that's being assaulted by forces from outside. It is, the tr- it is true that scriptures describe the believer's struggle as an individual as defensive, like in Ephesians 6. But when the scripture views the entire thrust of the church in its relationship to the world, to society, it is never pictured as on the defensive it is on the offense. The gates of hell mean that hell is hell is under attack. The gates of a strong city are being under attack. And, says Jesus, my church will win, shall prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
but shall be able to be subdued and break down these strongholds and to release those that are held captive. It's exactly what Paul is saying here. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. And, and I wish I could thunder those words in such a way as to capture our imagination and help us to see how wrong and, and, and terrible this attitude of sort of pessimism and despair that exists among believers today. We're so known for everything that we stand against, but we're not known for what we stand for. Many of us act as though all we can do is sort of hang on, that, we, that we've just got to simply wait for the Lord to come. And, and granted, we want the Lord to come, but what a terrible way to live. It's wrong. It's not what we are called to do. We are called to attack strongholds and weapons are placed in our hands, weapons of might, weapons of dynamite, weapons of power that are able to subdue and break down terrible strongholds of evil. The Bible is full of examples of this. They're there for our encouragement. In many of these places in the Old and the New Testament alike, these weapons prevail. They win against really entrenched evil that was present. We have an example in the Old Testament in Jonah where the weapon of truth is used to set a whole city free. Here is this heathen pagan city, Nineveh, which in its ignorance and darkness was doing things that were destroying the life of its people. There, there's always, <clears throat> this is always what era does. It results in poverty and degradation and insanity and demon possession, the destruction of humanity. And Jonah was sent to this pagan city to preach. And the biblical story centers largely on the prophet's personal desire to escape that mission that was given to him. But when he finally fulfills it, what's the result? The truth that Jonah preached about about a God who sits over human life, who judges it, who oftentimes permits catastrophe in order to make human beings wake up and see what's going on. That truth, that, that truth delivered this city. And Jonah said, for 40 days ju and judgment will follow, Jonah 3, 4. The result was from the king right down to the person in the street, they all repented. The entire city turned from their evil, faced the facts of life, and the city was spared for over 100 years. That is the direct result of the weapon of truth against a stronghold of evil. We can see how the weapon of love prevailed all over the scriptures. There's the story of David and Jonathan. What uh, an amazing story of friendship between these two men who were on opposite sides of the political fence. One was the son of the king and the other was the greatest threat to the king's throne. And by all rights, these two men should have been at one another's throats, but they were friends. They loved one another with a surpassing love. 2 Samuel 1, 26. And as a result, when David became king, Jonathan was delighted and, and did nothing at all to withstand him. He, the, the threatened breach between these two families was healed, extending even to Jonathan's son and his son's sons. What could have been a deadly feud, which would have severed a country, was healed by love. In the New Testament, there's, there's this little tiny letter to Philemon, and, and Philemon, perhaps there, there's no other human document which has done more to free slaves, I mean physical slaves, human slavery, than the letter of Philemon. Yet it, it hardly mentions the subject at all. It, it's not some diatribe. It's not some Facebook post that goes on and on and on. It's a love letter. It's addressed to a man whose slave had become a follower of Jesus. And in the wonderful and gracious warmth of that love born out of this new relationship that the apostle speaks 
really engagingly to this man and gently leads him so skillfully that he changed the world's attitude towards slavery, first in the Roman Empire and then in the whole world at large. More slaves have been set free because of that change than any other force that's been loosed on mankind. Take the weapon of righteousness. What a weapon that is. We read the story of Joseph when as a young man in his, in his prime, feeling the rising of, of passion in him, he, he was approached by the wife of his employer to indulge in, in, in moral wrongness. Joseph immediately resists. He could have compromised his conscience very easily. He, he could have said that it was forced on him. He could have justified the situation, but he didn't. He said instead, how can I commit such a sin against my God? Genesis 39, 9. And he fled, literally gathered up his garments and fled. And that righteous act on Joseph's part led him to prison. And it didn't look like it was profitable at all. But two years later, it led him to the throne of Egypt, where he became the second ruler of the land. We read the book of Daniel. Remember those three young Hebrew guys who resisted the proclamation of the king to bow down before the great idol erected on the plain. They refused to do so, even though threatened with the fiery furnace. They absolutely refused to yield their principles. Because of that, ultimately, the king himself became a believer and issued a proclamation that the God of Daniel must be honored and respected throughout the whole of the kingdom. These things are facts and history, evidence of how these weapons of our warfare can work, can prevail in the midst, right in the middle of human society. And then there's faith. Its exploits are, are so clearly evident in the scriptures. There's the story of Gideon and the story of Hezekiah as he was faced with the armies of the Assyrians surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Um, faith in the activity of God present in human history delivered that city in a remarkable way. And 185,000 Assyrians were slain in one night. These are facts. These are mighty weapons. They're not insignificant. They're not trivia. They are the mighty forces that you and I as followers of Jesus, as Christians, can attack the stronghold of evil in our own day. It's what the word of God calls us to do. So we have to learn what these weapons are and how to use them and then deliberately move to the offensive. We can stop being so defensive. I am so tired of being so defensive. I am so tired of Christians being so defensive can we stop being known for what we don't believe in and start being known for what we do believe in can we refuse to accept the status quo this attitude of nothing can be done a great deal can be done we can come alive friends we are the we are christians we have the the power of the god of the universe I need to repent of my barrenness, of my blindness, and take up the weapons at work. Locate the strongholds around us, in our homes, and then go to work. Some of them are right in our own families. Some of them are found in relationship to our boss. Some of them are in our neighborhood. Some in our school systems. Wherever they are, we can move against them. God does things when we begin to move out and attack strongholds around us. When we seek to attack with the weapons of truth, of love, of God's righteousness, and faith and prayer. What a day for action. But action based on the facts. Action based on truth.
And what a thrill it is to see God work in our day and in our generation. Amen, and God bless.